Jesus is coming again. Maybe morning, maybe noon. Let's stand together as we begin our time of worship by singing Worthy of Worship and Almighty. Thank you. 
you join me in prayer? Father, thank you so much for the time and the opportunity that you've given us to come and worship you and you alone. You are the Almighty, and Father, we are very grateful. At this season, we count our blessings. With so many things going on in our personal lives, and Father, in our nation and around this world, we still realize that you are supreme. Father, you are the sustainer. You are sovereign. Your providence is well known. And God, we thank you that you direct our lives. That you encourage and you inspire us no matter what. And that, Father, we can entrust ourselves to you knowing that you as the creator of all, you are going to guide us and oversee our steps and your ultimate will will be accomplished. And Father, we just want to be a part of that. And this morning we gather together to lift up our voices in praise, to give you the glory that only you deserve. And I pray that every one of us will be intentional. Put the cares of the world to the side this morning. We concentrate upon experiencing you and experiencing your presence, the power of your spirit in this place. Father, I pray that as we sing the songs, as we hear the scriptures, the testimonies, and Father, a message from your word, that we would listen, and God, we would be changed, and we would respond. And so this morning, we come with joy and anticipation. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Well, welcome to First Baptist Church, Sun City West. We're so glad that you have chosen to come and be engaged and involved this morning. So many wonderful smiles out there, some guests that, uh, that we have seen before and others that we haven't seen and members that just continue to be faithful, and we thank you for that. If this is the very first time that you've been here, like some friends of mine, new friends Barry and his family over there, we met at a, an estate sale this past week. Yeah. Guys came. Thank you. We appreciate that. So good to see y'all uh, from Washington State and uh, way up close to the Canadian border. Beautiful place up there. Thank you for taking the time. For all of y'all, if this is the very first time, we'd love for you to take your card that is in front of you, the guest card. Just uh, fill it out in its entirety. When you get ready to leave today, just in one of the four offering boxes and one of the exits, just put those in, and we would certainly appreciate you uh, doing that. I think it would be wonderful to continue our time of worship and celebration as we think about what God has done. That he's always the bright and morning star. No matter what, that star shines bright. And this morning, he shines bright with us. Miss Nancy. Blessed be the Lord God Almighty. Let's sing together. Father in heaven, how we love you. We lift 
might be new for some of you. Let's sing it through again. As I come into your presence, as the gates of praise, into your sanctuary, to stand you face to face, I look upon your countenance, I see the fullness of your grace, I can only bow down and say,
Be still and know that I am God. Let's sing together. on several different verses. Please follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. Romans 1.20 For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood 
from what has been made so that people are without excuse. We are blessed by these readings, for these are the words of the Lord.
Choir, great job, great job. Don't you love that song? Oh my goodness gracious, it talks about the majesty of Almighty God. And that's who we're talking about today for the second uh, part of this sermon on Does God Exist? It's the sixth in a uh, series of six messages on a biblical worldview, and so we're concluding that today. It has been a, a very interesting journey as we talk about the key doctrines, or theologies, that we must have to have a biblical worldview. You know, we all know that children sometimes ask difficult questions. And uh, one day, this girl, little girl, went in and asked her mom, said, where do human beings come from? Well, the mom said, well, God created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had children. And their children had children, and then that's how we got here. And so she seemed to be somewhat satisfied, but then she went and talked to her dad and said, Dad, where, where do human beings come from? And he said, well, you know, a long, long time ago, there were monkeys. And those monkeys evolved over millions of years, and those monkeys became human beings. And now this little girl was just confused. So she went back to her mom and said, Mom, you told me that God made human beings. And Dad said that uh, they came from, from monkeys. So which is right? A big smile came over the mom's face and said, Oh, sweetheart, it's very simple. I was talking about my side of the family. Your dad was talking about his side of the family. Everywhere we turn, there seems to be some kind of controversy or some kind of, of conflict about who the Creator is, or if He even exists. Last week we talked about the rational answers to atheists who do not have a concept or a belief in God at all. Another assumed conflict is a conflict between God and modern science. And that's what I want to address in the second part of this sermon on Does God Exist? There is that assumed conflict. You know, the Scripture speaks very clearly about creation and about the divine origin, which is inescapable to any, any one of us. Uh, Donna read the Scriptures. In Psalm 19, in Romans chapter 1, that very clearly states that God is the one who created everything. Genesis chapter 1, 1, she also read. So, so the question is, what is the problem? If the Bible so clearly states that, that this creator spoke everything into existence and it's clearly seen, why does there seem to be some kind of a, a conflict? Well, if we go back into a historical overview, we find that Actually, most of the great scientists of the past were theists, those who believed there was a supreme being. And many of them were Bible-believing Christians, whereas some of the ancient cultures like the Chinese and the Egyptians, they developed high levels of technology. It was the Western Christian civilization that really developed scientific thinking. In Christian cultures, the study of nature was not impeded by the, the, the nature or the worship of nature. 
There wasn't any obstacle there. We could, we could go in and try to figure out exactly how nature, how God created nature. Pagans, on the other hand, deemed that as investigation into their nature God as either ir- irreverent or irrelevant. Christians believe that nature, as God's handiwork, was created in an orderly and precise fashion. Everything working like clockwork. Science became the pursuit of discovering the formulas and laws which God built into his creation. So, through history, it seemed like that was the process. But then the period of the Enlightenment came, and that shifted man's search for knowledge to what is called the unaided human reason alone, meaning there is no God, that we can discover everything that we need to discover about the universe, the cosmos, just by nature itself. Many intellectuals began to take on this scientific knowledge, saying that that it conflicts now with the theist belief, the belief that there is a creator. In fact, uh, the philosopher Immanuel Kant, who lived in the 18th century, ruled out any possibility of the supernatural whatsoever and proposed strictly a model that everything is like a mechanical process. And it just happened. So it's often assumed that there is some animosity between science and faith, but in reality the divide may not be as wide as many people think. The 20th century English astronomer Fred Hall said this, and he, he was an atheist as he began to do his research. And he wrote, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a superintelligent has monkeyed around with physics as well as with chemistry and biology, and there are no blind forces worth of speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. And while this astronomer did not embrace Christ, he moved from an atheistic understanding to there is a super intellect that created things. Einstein said something similar when he said, everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that a spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, a spirit vastly superior to that of man, and one in the face of which we will, with our modest powers, must feel humble. In this way, the pursuit of science leads to a religious feeling of some special sort, which is indeed quite different from the religiosity of someone more naive. We have some of the great scientists who in the past centuries have had this understanding that God created everything, and then in the 18th, 19th, and even into the 20th and 21st centuries, there have been those scientists that have come back and said, no, it is not that way. There is no supreme being. And yet, slowly as evidence continues to unfold, we find that there are these 
who have been great scientists that have come to the conclusion, while not necessarily affirming Christ, have said, there is a super intelligence, a master designer out there that put all of this in motion. So what is the philosophy of modern science as it relates to God? Well, to some degree, conf the conflict has arisen because modern science and the Bible claim ultimate authority in discovering the truth. It is not science per se, but many current scientists in, in the scientific establishment, many today in that group of intellectuals with its philosophically tainted interpretations are hostile to faith. They are dead set against having any concept that there could be a supreme being out there, that nature itself tells us everything. The contemporary academic world takes for granted the philosophy known as scientific rationalism. And that view considers that the entire cosmos, the entire universe, is a closed system of material causes and effects unaffected by anything outside of that natural realm. In other words, there is no God that created it. It all happened within this closed system. That's what's being taught, and that's what is being embraced by many in modern science. This view of science is linked to the presumption that no supernatural mind has ever or will ever interfere with the natural order. So God to them exists only in the mind of men. And so subjective religious faith, like superstition, must be completely separated from anything to do with objective scientific knowledge. So modernists have arbitrarily ruled God out of consideration in the view of science. As the Berkeley law professor Philip Johnson said, they have set their own non-theistic criteria by some which scientific knowledge alone can be evaluated. He goes on to say, the doctrine that only purposeless forces played a role in biological history is not an empirical finding, but a metaphysical assumption built into the definition of science. What does that mean? It means that they have already, without evidence, without research, have said, no, the universe is a closed system. There is no God. Therefore, when we move forward in our scientific knowledge, our assumption, our criteria, is to look only at the natural world and never even give a thought or a consideration that there could be an outside force that would divinely create this universe. Well, not all scientists of the 21st century embrace that. Dr. Stephen Meyer, who is a philosopher of science, he is uh, a wonderful scientist in himself, the founder of the Discovery Institute and the uh, Center for Science and Culture. His latest book, called The Return of the God Hypothesis, focuses upon how the evidence that we are finding in every direction, including the Webb telescope that has just been launched, and is bringing back incredible data, he comes and says it is absolutely 100% definitive 
on the evidence of the existence of one that created everything out of nothing. He argues that theism, with its affirmation of a transcendent, intelligent, active creator, best explains the evidence we have concerning biological and cosmological origins. In fact, he goes on to say, in a stunning conclusion, the data support not only the existence of an intelligent designer of some kind, but the existence of a personal God. And so we, we see this, this change from the historical vantage point where scientists believed in their methodological processes that the universe was created by God and we can experience that and find it within nature to the modern science which says it is a closed system and there is no evidence whatsoever that there was a creator, but we can find everything about the existence of this universe within the universe itself and nothing else. How it just somehow happened out of nothing. So where there are scientists now with the data that is coming in so quickly that comes back and says, no, we need to go back and look at the God hypothesis, that, that there is that possibility that there is a creator, one who is the origin of all of the universe. That's what we are facing. So is there a conflict? Only with personalities. Because the reality is, as we look at God and the science, and we look at the Bible and science, true science and the Bible do not conflict. Fallen man and God's word are often in conflict. So in addressing the current controversy between modernist scientists and the revelation of Scripture, there are two things that we've got to keep in mind as we move forward. First is the sufficiency of revelation. The Bible teaches that God has given us double revelation that truth about his existence is sufficiently revealed through nature. Once again, let me look at those scriptures that Donna read. Psalm 19, 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the earth, and the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. Scripture is clear. The heavens declare the glory of God. In the New Testament, Paul says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So the Bible is very clear. If there's a conflict, it's a conflict with the fallen man. The evidence continues to be clear. God's existence is most fully in Scripture. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. He says that God is the one who brought 
His Word about. It is living. It is true. God's Word is factual. It's His Word. He speaks it. It becomes literally true. So the question that arises, if if the existence of God is seen in His Word, why don't people take His Word? Now listen, God made the universe, and God inspired the Scriptures. Two things. God made the universe, and God inspired the Scriptures. So if there exists an apparent contradiction between modern science and the Bible, then either scientific study or the Scriptures are being misinterpreted at that point. For instance, the medieval church, not the Bible, was an era when it falsely interpreted scriptures and condemned scientists and, and scientists like Galileo. You remember, you might in your, in your history courses when they actually taught those kinds of things. Remember that there was this idea in the Middle Ages from the church that the earth was the center of the universe and everything else went around it. And when Galileo and other scientists said, no, that's not correct, they condemned them. Who was, who, was, who was incorrect? It was the church. They misinterpreted what the Scripture says. Modern scientists are in error when they misinterpret the signs of the natural world that point to a creator, and they cling to their own little g-god of chance through time, that somehow it just happened. I still have not understood the concept of where they, they come up with this idea that we can get back to the very creation because there had to be something that sparked, that brought about creation. Because when there was nothingness, how could it create itself? At least that's my finite mind. But they seem to jump off in this incredible faith in reality of this little g-god of chance through time. Now listen, while it's true that the Bible is not written primarily as a textbook on science, it should be expected that a God-breathed book would be accurate when it speaks specifically on scientific issues. Otherwise, one is forced to conclude that the God who created the universe and who authored the Bible knew a lot about spiritual things, but not too much about the natural things, even though he created it. And that's silly. If you create something, you know every aspect about it. You know every detail about it. Otherwise, you couldn't have created it. So the sufficiency of revelation of God's Word gives us an understanding that science, true science, will focus upon the Creator. The evidence is clearly seen. And it is sufficient. But then we look to the fallen nature of man. The Scripture says that man in his natural fallen state is inherently hostile to God. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 verse 21, 
Once you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So the issue isn't creation. The issue isn't science. The issue isn't the scriptures. The issue comes down to fallen man. There is this understanding that we are hostile to him because of our sinfulness. In fact, man tends to want to suppress the truth about the existence of a creator to whom he is accountable to. So if I can just suppress it, then I feel better all right around. You go back to what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. What an interesting phrase. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain. God's made it plain. That's what the Scripture says. He goes on to say, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, which I quoted a moment ago, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. I think this explains why many scientists who believe in, in uh, extraterrestrial life can search earnestly for a simple, regular radio pulse from outer space and and if by chance they were to find one, they would cry out and say, intelligence, there's intelligence out there. And yet they can look at the complex DNA molecule and cry, that's by accident, accident. Because they want to suppress the truth. That God has clearly made known to them by the mere universe, according to Scripture in addition to his, his word. I remember years ago watching the uh, TV series Cosmos. The opening phrase of the atheist Carl Sagan's in that show or series was the cosmos is all that there is or ever was or ever will be. And it reflects our secular humanistic culture. The dominant view of our culture today is radically one-dimensional. This is life, and it's all there is. And nature is all we need to explain everything that exists. And I think this is, at the heart, the philosophy of naturalism. And that's what's being taught and permeated in the classrooms from elementary school through colleges. It's also been expressed widely in popular culture. Almost every TV show or movie out there, you will find there is no reference to a creator, but that Mother Nature herself brought this about. It goes from Disney World to television to children's books. It permeates everything, if you really spend time reading, watching. 
In his final paragraph of his book, God and the Astronomers, the astrophysicist Robert Jastro concluded with this statement. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Our debate is not about the Bible and science. The debate is about pursuing an unbiased examination of the scientific facts and following those facts wherever they lead. Because they will always, always lead back to a creator God. God is the designer and the craftsman of everything in the universe. He created human beings a step above all the rest. And we come back to what Isaiah 40, 28 says. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. His understanding no one can fathom. As we conclude this series, we have looked at the key elements of a biblical worldview. They focus upon the scriptures that they are truth without any mixture of error. They can be trusted in its entirety. It focuses upon the literal existence of Jesus Christ, his virgin birth, the salvation that he offers by grace alone. The existence of the Creator who loved you so much that he invested himself completely because he created you in his image. And in your fallen state, in my fallen state, he sent his son Jesus to give his life. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, he offers for the fallen creatures that we are to accept him into our lives, transform us. And so... We have choices. We can follow the path of secular humanism, denounce any kind of understanding that there is a super intellect, a supreme being, a creator God, and go with our own devices and our own intellectualism and rationalism and suppress the truth and come to a very rude understanding when we breathe our last or we can accept the unconditional love that God has given us and the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy. Most people here today have given their lives to Christ. Those are the foundational truths we must live our life by and make our decisions by. 
And this morning, as we conclude this time, I ask you fervently in our invitation as a believer in Christ to say, God, help me to live these out, these truths. Help it to be evident in my life because one of the key truths of a biblical worldview is that we are to share this good news with others. We need to be the light, and they need to know it. With us using words or not using words, but to radiate the light of Christ. And so I would ask you to commit yourself in this invitation to say, God, help me be that person. And for those that don't have a relationship with Christ, I ask you right now, this morning, if you would give your life to Christ. There may be others that want to join this church. We invite you to come. But more than anything else, this invitation, you've been listening to the sermon, the best thing you can do is as God speaks to you, is that you respond. Father, we come to this time. It's a very important time. Significant. Help us to hear. Help us to obey. And help us to respond. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please stand and let's sing our invitation. be seated if you would. And uh, before I talk about Operation Christmas Child, let Nancy do a great job. Her birthday's tomorrow. Yeah. Choir, would you lead us in a happy birthday to Miss Nancy? She didn't get that very often. <laughs> happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday, God bless you, happy birthday to you. 
Nancy does not like the spotlight, so I'll hear about that in our staff meeting, but it is good. Thank you so much, and happy birthday. Our Operation Christmas Child, you've worked very hard. You see the boxes up here that are going somewhere around the world in the months ahead, and we are so excited that, uh, that children will be able to open these, sometimes their only gift that they've ever, ever received. And in those countries, wherever they uh, will be, there will be a gospel pamphlet in their language for a kid that they can, they can read and they can understand. And so we're praying for that. And so I'm asking our mission team co-chair, uh, Trudy uh, Williamson, if you'll come and you'll lead us in a time of prayer, praying over these boxes. And if you would join her in that, I would deeply appreciate that. And then after that prayer, I'm going to turn it to our deacon chair, Bill yeah, Sweeney. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, as I look at the boxes and they begin to come in, I know they were packed with prayers and with love. Lord, we don't know where they will go when they leave us. We don't know who will receive them. But Father, I know that you will use them to bless the life of a child. Maybe open a door for that child and their family to come to know you as their Savior. Father, just thank you for the efforts of our people as they pack shoe boxes. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Again, this Sunday, we're happy to present to you uh, three of our deacon candidates. There are seven of them, so we, we heard two last week and three today, and two next week, and next week is when we will vote uh, for the deacon. So first off is Frank Bush. So Frank. Good morning, everyone. Uh, this is, uh, I, I feel honored to be nominated for the position of deacon in a church, in this church. And I, I just definitely appreciate that. Um, I, was, uh, I was born in Washington, D.C. 1947. So just so you know, I'm 75. Um, I was raised in New Jersey uh, for all of my growing up years and college years, and eventually got transferred to Colorado. Um, after I after I graduated high school in 1965, I went to a Dutch Reformed summer camp where I met my future wife. A, a week after we met, I told her on the phone that I was going to marry her, and she told me that I was crazy. <laughs> I think I probably still am. So now, we've been married for over 55 years. 
several years later, friends of ours visited us in, in Colorado, and they shared their faith with us. After they left and they headed on to California, we thought that that was really great for them, but not, we're not interested. After that, they sent us the book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and I immediately grabbed the book and started reading it in the basement downstairs. And after I read the book, I prayed the prayer at the end of the book and accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. My wife, Betty, was also around the same time talking to her friend. Her friend called and said, did you get the book? And she told, yeah, my husband got it. He won't let me read it right now. So, so um, they were talking on the phone, and while they were talking, uh, my wife accepted the Lord as her personal Savior as well. Since that time, we have uh, become active in several different churches. I became a deacon, uh, and the church sent us to, a, to Portland, Oregon, to learn about something called the lay pastor ministry. After, uh, after moving uh, to Arizona, we uh, have become uh, members of, the, of this church, First Baptist Church, Sun City West, where we now are serving. Uh, my background since uh, receiving, uh, becoming a Christian includes singing in the choir, which my wife and I still do, becoming a deacon in a previous church, serving as a lay pastor, uh, and that was after we had uh, quite a bit of lay pastor training and then brought it back to that church. They instituted the lay pastor program at that church, and then when we finally moved, they were had 17 lay pastors, which be, would be kind of like uh, elders or deacons. Uh, I was, uh, in our last church, I was uh, ordained as an elder. I uh, was teaching adult Sunday school class, classes, and I was uh, leading adult Bible studies. Uh, I was also tr being trained in counseling, and my wife and I actually did some counseling of, of some others. And uh, researching, I also took it on to research, I wanted to know more about heaven, so I researched every scripture I could find from Genesis to Revelation about heaven. And I found that uh, how could we not want to go there? It's wonderful. So that's pretty much my testimony. Thank you for listening. Next, Debbie Crump. Like Pastor said a couple weeks ago, I was um, been Baptist since nine months in the womb. I've been <laughs> in church all my life. I was born in Evansville, Indiana, but I was raised in the far south suburbs of Chicago. Um, I became a Christian, asked Jesus as my Savior when I was eight years old, and then a couple um, months later was baptized. Um, 
I went to a Baptist Bible college for a couple years. I got married, had two daughters. And when the youngest one um, graduated in high school, Jim says, well, it's time to go. I said, where are we going? He says, someplace warm. And I said, um, well, it's either Arizona or, or Florida. He says, well, I hate humidity. So that's how we ended up here in Arizona. And that was 31 years ago. Um, when we first came here, I wanted to go to North Phoenix Baptist Church because I had heard their choir sing on Moody Radio, and I really wanted to see them in person. So we went there, and a couple months later, we ended up um, joining that church. I got to sing in that choir for over 10 years. Um, Jim became a deacon there, and we also were Bible study directors there. Um, when we moved to this side of town, we decided to find a church a little closer to home, and so we went to the granddaughter church of that, um, North Phoenix, which was the church at Arrowhead, which is at 79th and Union Hills. And that was um, a multi-generational church also, which was important to me because my grandkids were little. And I wanted to make sure that they got saved. So I taught Alana, CBS, um, sang in the ensemble for a while, and um, Jim and I were also directors <coughs> of Bible study there. Um, once they stopped going to Awana, then um, we decided to get a close church even closer to home. So we, we started coming here, and um, that was eight and a half years ago. And um, about seven years ago, Jim and I were privileged to become deacons. And so we served for three years, and I sing in the choir, sing in ladies' ensemble, play the bells. Um, I help with uh, Sandy in the kitchen sometimes. Um, uh, on, uh, once a month, I help with the movie. Um, and some people say I hold up the wall for Sunday school. <laughs> I meet and greet people, which, as you can tell, I love to serve the Lord. But 22 months ago, my um, world fell apart. Jim and I were both diagnosed with COVID. Um, I had like a headache for two days. He ended up in the hospital. Twelve days later, he was gone. If it wasn't for the Lord and my small group family, my Bible study family, my choir family, and this church, I don't know how I would have gotten through it. So thank you for performing. Thank you, David. Bill McKenna. Good morning, church. Normally, I come up here as chair of buildings and grounds. Well, I've done my two terms there, and according to the church bylaws, I've got to take a year off. So I have passed the ball there, and currently Jim Ross uh, is currently the leader of that. He and his, his wife uh, are very good Christians. If you don't know them, get to know them. They're, they're worth knowing. But in any case, let me give you a little background on myself. Uh, since I've got three minutes to cram a whole life 
of Jesus and God and all that into three minutes, it's going to be tough. I was born in a small town. Actually, I was born in Stamford, Connecticut, but lived in a small town just adjacent to it. Uh, was sprinkled, baptized as an infant in a community church there. Uh, I don't remember that episode, obviously. Uh, but later on in elementary school, uh, my parents took me to church, and, and as children, we went to Sunday school. And Sunday school really stuck for me. The reason being, I was a baby boomer. I guess I still am a baby boomer. I don't feel much like a baby anymore. But in any case, um, the school system didn't have enough classrooms for all the kids in the baby boom. So the, the community church was right next door to the elementary school. I went to Sunday school in the exact same classroom in the church that I did, sat at the same desk that I did five days a week as an elementary school student. So all those kid lessons seemed like they really stuck with me because I was learning things like one plus one equals two and God created the world in seven days. They, they all stuck with me and, and you know it was obvious to me one plus one equals two. Well, how could God not be true too? How could he have not done that? It was all the same to me. As a child, I learned all those things. They stuck. I believed them. I still do. About age 13, I accepted Jesus uh, as my Lord and Savior. I've grown a lot in that relationship since. I'm, I'm not sure at that age I really, really understand the depth of what was going on there. But um, as I said, that relationship has grown on me and continues to grow every day that I'm alive. Eventually, I ended up going, uh, of course, to high school and on to college. I went to college in the south, in the city of Atlanta, Georgia. Anyone who's ever been to Atlanta, if you go every other block, on the corner is a Baptist church. There's no way around that. Well, somehow, I ended up attending church as a, as a Southern Baptist, uh, and that stuck as well. Uh, I still am a Southern Baptist. And I learned a lot. I, I, I grew a lot in that relationship. Eventually, I got out of college. All of a sudden, I was a bridge engineer. Well, I worked a job building bridges on an interstate, built about 20 of them. That group was getting ready to pack up and leave the Atlanta area and go to Shreveport. I didn't want to go to Shreveport. I don't know why. It just didn't sound great. So I opened the phone book. And God pointed my hand to, oh, look, here's a bridge design firm. I'll call them, see if they want an engineer. Well, I called them up. They said, yeah, we do need an engineer. Took a job interview, and bing, got that job. Four years later, that firm was getting ready to be sold and dissolved by the competition, which was much bigger. So once again, I said, well, I guess I need some help from the Lord finding a job. So I opened up an engineering trade magazine, and here was a big ad from the uh, transit system in Atlanta saying they needed a bridge engineer. So I responded to that. It was one of those you send the resume in and don't hear for, from, from anybody for a long time. And there at work one day, the phone rang. It was an ex-professor of mine at Georgia Tech. Hey, Phil, you serious about wanting that job? I said, yeah. He said, I'm the one who put the ad in. I need help. I'm the only bridge engineer here, and we got miles of bridges. 
come on down to Atlanta, we'll have lunch and call it a job interview and shred the rest of the resumes. Now, if that wasn't God's hand in it, I don't know what was. Well, eventually I invented something there that caused me to take early retirement. Again, here I am looking for work. I found work out in Sparks, Nevada. So across the country I went. That job turned out to be temporary for one year. Hmm, here we go again. So I put in my resume with Union Pacific Railroad, a little bitty railroad, you may have heard of it. And they called me up and said, we need a bridge engineer to design and build all the bridges going into the Yucca Mountain Nuclear Repository. Well, the president got in, Obama, and cut all the funds to that. Well, I'd already been in the hiring process, so I ended up staying with them as a bridge engineer in the south, went back over to the south of the, the U.S., southeastern U.S., and was in charge of bridges and buildings for there for, well, technically I'm still employed, um, but they told me at some point, because my neck is fused, I can no longer drive. Well, if you can't drive, you can't go from bridge to bridge, you can't travel. So they said, we're, we really can't accommodate you. We're going to have to put you on disability. Well, that was about eight years ago. I'm still <coughs> disabled in theory. Uh, most of you know I can't move my head at all. I have to look around like this. But I still serve the Lord here. Uh, as many of you know, I, I did six years on the buildings and grounds or, or short, somewhere close to that. Made a few improvements in here. Some of them you can see, some of them you can't. Now it's time for me to do maintenance in another manner. I, I'm going to uh, hopefully become a deacon when they vote next week, and I will be maintaining the church. Not the building, but the people sitting out there in the pews listening to me. Thank you. Thank you for your birthday wishes. I do appreciate it. The beautiful altar flowers today are provided by Deborah Rausch in honor of her father. We appreciate those very much. Today is the last day for you to purchase a ticket for the Thanksgiving Missions Awareness Banquet which will be this Wednesday at 5 o'clock in CLC. It begins at 5. The doors will open no earlier than 4.30. And it's open seating, so you don't have to get here quite as early as some of us like to. <coughs> the kitchen team will be making some preparations, and it would be advantageous for us to wait until at least 4.30 to move into the CLC. But you'll see that our speaker is Alex Dennis. You have seen short video updates from him. He's the pastor out at Asante Church. We've been a partner with that ministry for some time now, and it will be exciting to have him come and be our speaker. Also, our entertainment is a gentleman, if you were here in August for the One Lev concert, the Jewish group, he was part of that group, Denver from the Mile High Orchestra. He will be singing for us on Wednesday evening, a very brief time, and then next Sunday evening, the 20th at 4 o'clock, he will be bringing his entire orchestra for a concert on a love offering basis with refreshments in the COC afterwards. So I encourage you to come and bring some people with you. Today is also the last day for you to sign up for the men's ministry luncheon, which will be on Tuesday at 1130. 
at Tivoli Gardens down on Bell. If you did not have an opportunity to already pack a shoebox, or if you would like to take others, there are some on the table in the main lobby. If you take them today, they need to be back no later than Wednesday so that they can be moved on to the next place and you will be part of that very important ministry. But thank you for those of you who have already filled one or more, but there are other boxes if you would like to participate further. As Kim Faulkner comes to lead us in our closing prayer, I invite you to stand. <coughs> Kim and her husband, Lee, are leaving tomorrow, going back to Pennsylvania. They will be back hopefully in February. And we have prayed for Lee because he underwent very serious heart surgery, and God answers those prayers for him. We are grateful. I'm going to miss Kim very much. Thank you for being a part. I'm so grateful for this church family. And I'm grateful that you have advertised in the Independent because that's how we found you last year. Immediately the music drew us, and then we felt the Spirit of God. And we're just in love with all of you here. And we hate to go, but my husband's friend is very, very ill, and we're needed there so we can take care of Kim and his family. So will you pray with me, please? Father God, we're so grateful. So grateful for this time that we have together, Lord. We're so grateful for the Holy Spirit that you have sent into this place who lights the souls of all these people who are here worshiping you, Father God. We have no doubt of your existence, Lord. We know that you have created the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish in the sea. Scripture tells us that, Lord. And we wonder, Father, why are you mindful of us? because you love us, Lord, and you want a relationship with us. So we would ask that you would help us to want a relationship back with you, Father God, and that we would give you all of our lives and not hold anything back. We would ask you to bless us this week, bless Lee and Isaac as we travel, and bless all who are here and all the people that they come in contact with. In your name we pray, amen. amen.